Hello, it's Wednesday. Hello, it's Wednesday, January the 12th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up. They've extended the deadline for your tax return, but Money Mail are telling us don't relax about your tax. Pay it by the end of the month. Also, smart motorways, the extensions to smart motorways, they're being axed for a safety review. Why aren't they getting rid of the ones we've got already? The care homes that are still locked down. But first, what did you make of his performance? It was probably the most important one Boris Johnson has ever done. I'm talking about Prime's questions. And I think Keir Starmer missed an open goal. So finally, Boris Johnson has admitted at Primes' questions. It was incredibly well attended, of course. He attended a party in the Garden of 10 Downing Street back in May 2020 while the country was in the thick of lockdown. At the time, the rules were you could only socialise with one other person, social distancing, even outside. The Prime Minister told the Commons he didn't realise that the, quotes bring your own booze party wasn't a work event. In hindsight, he said he should have ordered people to go back inside number 10 and break it up. Will that uh, explanation wash in the court of public opinion? A Savannah Comres poll has found that two thirds of people think the prime minister should resign. Chris Hopkins is associate director at Savannah Comres, who ran the poll, and he joins me now. Chris, before we talk about the poll, Prime's question time is a great opportunity for Sir Keir Starmer. He's a lawyer, a clever lawyer. I think he blew it. Don't know why he didn't ask the Prime Minister, did you authorise your Principal Private Secretary, Martin Reynolds, to send that email out, inviting people to a bring-your-own-booze party? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I felt like it was still one of Starmer's stronger PMQs, and I think that all of the clips tonight that are going to be shown on, on the 6th and the mm. 10th, you know, that, that, that could do cut through to the public, are going to be of Keir Starmer being pretty forensic, and, and yeah. they're going to be of the Prime Minister failing to answer his questions. So... Yeah, well, well, obviously he could have gone a little bit further. I think but ultimately he did ask, yeah. he did ask enough questions, and I think that it was dominating PMQs was five or six. I think is going to be going to be the key factor there. And now your poll, pretty much, that's pretty devastating. Sixty-six percent, I think, of people asked thought the prime minister should resign because they just this this the revelation of this party. No doubt it took place. The email from Martin Reynolds was clear as clear as a bell. Uh, he initially wouldn't tell us whether he was there. He admitted today he was there for twenty-five minutes with his wife. Do you normally take your wife to a work event? The reason in the poll people gave Chris is it a sense people have just got fed up with this. They think he's not been honest and open about. About this these parties yeah absolutely andrew i mean i think i think that that definitely is is a factor but i think ultimately it, 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 it's the unfairness it's the perceived unfairness you know in, Mar- in in may 2020 and the rest of the uk was locked down as you say and we could only see one other adult from outside our household uh, outside the home it had to be outdoors and you know the, the, the lawmakers were quite clearly flouting those rules and and, and the prime minister being the principal rulemaker, the prime minister of the country, was also knowingly flouting those rules and has admitted today that he did so, has admitted today that in hindsight he should have not done so, so should have broken the party up. And, and yeah, you know, it is pretty, pretty incriminating. And I think that it's going to be the stories of those that were burying loved ones that couldn't mm. go visit, uh, you know, visit loved ones in hospital, um, etc. That, that that really is going to is going to hit home. And I think that you know, when it comes to all of the, all of the things that the prime minister has has done uh, in, in office, whether it's the flat renovations or some other allegations of sleaze and lobbying scandals, none of them cut through quite like 
this perceived unfairness because ultimately this is the ultimate example of it being one one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. Um, I talked to Tory MPs about your poll and uh, you could see how concerned they were. They were going through the reads of the poll for the detail, but that is pretty devastating. 66%, that's two thirds. There was a poll, I think, um, after Allegra Stratton, his head of um, communications, when that cringe-making film emerged of her laughing and joking during a, uh, a mock press conference. Uh, but I think the highest that got to was about 52%. 66% is pretty devastating. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that that's the, really the key takeaway that, that I've got from, from, from this latest poll is, is as you say, you know, we found that 54% of people thought that the Prime Minister should resign after the Allegra Stratton video. Yeah. We're now 12 points higher than yeah. that. And yes, OK, that is a little bit of attrition over the last month. I think that you know, people are starting to get a little bit fed up of, of the Prime Minister. They're starting to see through his facade a little bit. But ultimately, you know, taking the two incidents as separate, you know, it, w- it was just over half uh, after Christmas party gate, and now it's two thirds over this scandal. And ultimately, how long can the prime minister survive these scandals? You know, the course of public opinion is is is, is usually a you know, pretty good arbiter of, of, of what's going to happen. And I think, I think the important thing ultimately is that is that if the Conservative vote lead or vote share continues to drop in opinion mm. polls, then the Conservative backbenchers who ultimately owe Boris Johnson for their jobs, having won so handsomely, are going to start fearing for their jobs and start wondering whether they should get rid of him to bring in someone more likely to win the next election. He's had the most extraordinary Houdini qualities in the past, but he will know, uh, and he will know this better than anybody, there is nothing more ruthless than a Conservative MP who thinks he or she may be led to defeat by their current leader. Just ask Mrs Thatcher. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, what, while he does have, I guess, some, some 2019 loyalty uh, still there, I think, you know, this... This latest scandal and, and the evidence, you know, of, of, of recent voting intention polls. You know, our last our last poll had Labour with a four point lead. We're going to be asking that again next this weekend. Sure you are. I'm pretty sure it's going to be considerably larger when we publish those results on Monday or Tuesday next week. So, um, so yeah, you know, if, if if this does have cut through, which it has, and if it continues to stick, mm-hmm. and if the Prime Minister can't escape. Um, you know this scandal, and that's not to say you know who knows if they if ITV in particular have got more um, you know more evidence of potential wrongdoing from the prime minister during lockdown. Um, then then yeah, you know this this really could be could be fatal for the PM. All right, that's Chris Hopkins, associate director at Savannah Comrades. So just to remind you, that poll says sixty six percent of people asked by Savannah Comrades think Boris Johnson should resign over the revelation he went to that party, which he now claims he thought was a work event. Thanks for joining us. That's Chris Hopkins, Associate Director. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free in full along with our other podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So the wave of Omicron infections before Christmas led to even tighter rules on visitors for care home residents. They've not yet been relaxed. Residents in care homes, as well as those receiving at home care, are limited to three nominated visitors and their main carer. Some experts have warned that the rules pose a risk to residents' health and well-being. Dr Patricia McNair is a Surrey-based GP who specialises in care for the elderly and also specialises in palliative care. Uh, Dr McNair, I was just looking, um, there were 40 deaths attributed to COVID in care homes in England in the week to Christmas Eve. That compared to 1,800 a week in January 2021. So it's 
much less serious than it was, but we've still got pretty tight restrictions. Yes, that's right. I and mean, people are still, people in care homes remain very vulnerable. Do you think the restrictions have to stay in place for a very long time? I think we just need to have more discussion. I think people within the care homes, we need to hear their voices and views and the views of their family. And they need a little bit more autonomy in in deciding how they would like visiting to be. That said, of course, the protection of the rest of uh, the people within the home has to be included in that decision. But uh, we've just taken away their autonomy in in making decisions as to what risks they face. And um, I've had several patients who are very vulnerable, who are coming to the end of life, because my main role is now palliative care, but don't want to be locked away for the last few weeks or months of their life. So uh, the ones who are living at home have been able to make the choice, well, I'm going to go out to the local shop to see my friends or whatever. But people in care homes have been completely overridden. And in a sense, I guess those people, particularly if mentally they're aware and alert, Dr McNair, but they've got physical difficulties which are leading to the end of life, they are going to be, they're going to feel they're imprisoned. Undoubtedly. And, you know, we're quite ageist and um, paternalistic towards older people and you know we feel we're doing the best for them without asking them what they really want uh, and and of course it's difficult within a home full of vulnerable people and, and different views uh, but very few have, have really made any effort to accommodate different um, views on it and different wishes so one rule has been applied to everybody and most most care homes could be reorganized a little bit or things could be changed now maybe to have a wing of those people who want more visitors to visit and and those who choose to be protected to be kept separately where they're less exposed but we haven't really gone down that path and there's, you make the point too, don't you, that if residents in care homes are isolated, it could affect their diet, uh, they may not get up, they may not stretch their legs, and that can lead to a decline in cognitive ability. Oh, hugely so. I mean, we, we know that anyone who's isolated for any prolonged um, length of time or in any way uh, feels the effects of it on their mental and physical well-being. So they may feel more depressed, they may feel more anxious, they're less inclined to eat regularly and eat good food. As you say, they're less inclined to keep active and go out. So uh, all of those feed into general health, but they all play a part in cognition as well. Do you think there's an element here, Dr McNair, because there's this will all be part of the public inquiry, of course, but some there will be inevitably criticism of the numbers of people who died in care homes at the start of the pandemic, not least because some uh, people with COVID were rem- transferred from hospitals into care homes. Do you think because of that, perhaps the government is being overcautious about care homes now? I'm sure that plays a part in all the decisions that are being made, but quite a few care homes are fairly autonomous in how they work. So I've visited one or two locally. In fact, I, I visited one Actually, it was just before the Omicron uh, variant rose, but I visited one and was astonished when I said, well, um, I'll put my PPE on. And they said, oh, no, we voted here that we don't want any of that, that everybody just wants life to go on as normal. And the residents had literally got together and had a vote um, 
and decided, at least in the in the wing of it I was on, that they would just have open visiting and no PPE unless an individual particularly, you know, made a point of it. So, um, you know, people, the care homes don't have to follow the government guidelines. They can run themselves, um, bearing in mind that they also have to take into account the very vulnerable ones within the home. Yeah, I was just going to ask you just finally, I, I sense too the Relatives and Residents Association saying um, that they think that people living in care away from their families, they're facing more stringent restrictions than the rest of the country. And that's really difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. It's, well, it's very difficult. It's working in palliative care. One of the most difficult things uh, and the cause of most of, of our complaints recently has been family feeling shut off from their loved one as they die. And um, understandably, at the beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know what was going on. And then we realized the dangers of it all. And we were very stringent. And I think we just need to continually review and individual homes need to continually review what's best for their residents in a holistic way, what's best in terms of their general access to company, to family, to food and exercise, uh, and find more in, find more inventive ways around protecting those who need to be protecting protected and giving freedom to those who want to make their own decisions. Well, that sounds very sensible to me. That's Dr. Patricia McNair. She's a Surrey Pace GP who specialises in care for the elderly and palliative care, and great work you're doing too. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. Get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So ministers have announced they're halting plans for 11 new smart motorways because of safety concerns over the roads, which have no hard shoulders and have been blamed for 24 deaths. However, some 100 miles of smart motorway already under construction will still go ahead. Joining me to talk about this now is campaigner Claire Mercer, whose husband lost his own life on a smart motorway. Claire, when I heard Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, saying that fears over the smart motorways was going to lead to the halting of the rollout of new smart motorways, I thought, well, what about the ones we've got? Why are they going to be allowed to continue? Why aren't they shut? Or why don't they just reinstate the hard shoulders until such times as they've worked out the safety concerns? Exactly. All this pomp and circumstance and ceremony about these announcements today. And they're just, they're nothing. They amount to nothing. They're saying they need five years worth of data on the new smart motorways, but they don't need five years worth of data on the roads that we're currently driving on. I don't understand. How, how do you need it for some roads, but not all? And, and, and of course, concerns have been raised following fatal accidents involving broken down vehicles being hit from behind due to a lack of a hard shoulder. And what they're going to do is test more rigorously, apparently, Claire, the technology used to spot cars that are stranded and they're not on a hard shoulder because the idiots have got rid of them. Exactly. Uh, I mean, why are we in a situation where we're analysing them for the 25th time since yeah. I've been campaigning for two and a half years yeah. after they're up and running? When do you ever do that with something that involves, you know, people's lives? It's just utter madness. Yeah. Now, if you could bear to tell us about Jason, your husband, who you lost mm -hmm. in June 2019, I appreciate you've probably had to talk about this so often, Claire, but I think listeners would be very concerned and would, would like to hear if you can tell us what happened to Jason. Well, he had what should have been a minor incident and just an inconvenience of a few minutes. He had a minor collision with another vehicle on the M1 Junction 34. 
but they were at a sign that said no hard shoulder for four miles but it didn't say but there's an emergency refuge area a mile out of sight um two and a half years ago we knew a lot less about smart motorways than we do now so i don't even know if my husband knew what one was i only found out what one was when it killed yeah. him yeah yeah, and, um, and he got out of the so, car, did he, to exchange details with the other yeah, driver? Yeah, that's the problem. That's what happened, you see. See, they couldn't get their cars right out of the live running lane because of the crash barrier. Yeah. They couldn't get over the crash barrier because it was a 30-foot drop. Oh. And they got out of their vehicles. And I now know that almost all the fatalities on these roads, and there's been a lot more than 24, by the way. We're, right. we're in the 60s now. Oh, really? Um, yeah, um, and almost every fatality on these roads, it's the people that are out of the car. Because they get out of the car because there's a problem. And so that truck didn't just hit my husband's car. It, it hit him. My husband, Jason and Alexandru were physically, bodily hit by the truck. And, you know, you can only just imagine what that did to them. So they, it didn't just kill them. We say they were killed on this road. But that doesn't summarize it. Or they had to spend specialist teams in to retrieve the bodies. I'm not going into too much detail, yeah. but that's what was needed. And, you know, so because the technology that we're led to believe is installed and working didn't pick them up so the lane wasn't closed and i mean they were lucky that they weren't well it didn't make any difference in the end but they were lucky they weren't killed within seconds because you you don't have 17 minutes that's the average response time and the government is promising to reduce it to 10 minutes but you don't have 10 minutes you have from the time it takes you for the vehicle behind you to hit you because as soon as you have a problem you are immediately in danger you don't think we need an inquiry. They just—they are dangerous, in your view, Claire. They mm-hmm. were the reason you've lost your husband. Uh, mm-hmm. And in your view, get the hard shoulders back. Exactly. That's all we want, the hard shoulders back. And we don't need another review. We need people to... We need to stop paying people to sit around talking about this and actually do it. The easiest thing in the world would be to flick the switch over the first lane and just... It's just a temporary fix. You just close the first lane on all the motorways. It's one switch controlling massive, massive sections. So it'd take one switch and close all the lanes and we've got a temporary fix to the problem while they get round to painting the solid white line back in. Well, Claire, as ever, our, our um, condolences to you because it's a, it's a brutal uh, loss for you, but your campaign continues and um, I think it's down to you and some of the undercover work the mayor has done that they've at least stalled the plans for 11 smart motorways. Now we've got to crack on and get the other ones shut down too, haven't we? Yep, definitely. All right, that's Claire Mercer, whose husband Jason lost his life on a smart motorway just over two years ago. Thanks for joining us. So, Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood here with the latest headlines. So, it's the League Cup semi-final tonight. That's right, yes. Uh, Chelsea are two up against Tottenham Hotspur. Correct. They're playing at Tottenham. They're playing at Tottenham, that's right. So this is probably Tottenham's only chance now. Oh, no, are they still in the FA Cup? Oh, they're still in the FA oh, Cup, okay. yeah. But yeah. this is their yeah. big chance. But, but they, you know, yeah, one game away from potentially... Where, this is the first chance for of the season for a team to get to Wembley. Right. Uh, so obviously, you know, it's a big moment in the in the calendar. Everyone's trying, you know, wants to get there. So yeah. Chelsea in the box seat, they're 2-0 up, but they go now to Tottenham. Now, really, they should have killed this tie in the first leg because they were so superior to Tottenham that they should have been 5-0 up. So that's the only sort of solace that yeah. Tottenham can take from this. And, and tonight, if they could score the first goal, you never know, Tottenham could turn it around in front of their own fans... Uh, obviously Conte is the Tottenham manager has mm. a point to prove against Chelsea his former club right. so he will be desperate to get yeah. uh, to get one over his former club and uh, and tonight's a chance but if Chelsea score first you can't see Tottenham turning it around 
But as I say, at the end of the day, we will know the first team to, uh, yeah. to book their spot at and Wembley. They'll, and they'll be against... Um, I can't remember. They will be against the winners of Arsenal, Arsenal and Liverpool. Arsenal and Liverpool, which who haven't played their first COVID. exactly, and they play now play their first leg at Anfield tomorrow. That's your team. That's my team, and uh, Arsenal have got a uh, a very big week actually because they play Liverpool, as I say, in the first mm. leg of this, and then on Sunday they play Tottenham right. uh, in the North London derby, which is obviously a massive game uh, yeah. in terms of just being the North London derby, but also in this race for fourth place, which both clubs are going for, and then the following Thursday they play Liverpool in the second leg. So it's a big three yeah. three games for Arsenal who are currently rather depleted in terms of personnel with uh, injuries, and COVID cups. and I, people being I, in the African Cup of Nations. And trophies, depleted of trophies. Well, Sorry to remind I you of that. say that. I mean, when yes, did, you're right, yes. When did they last win a trophy? Well, they won the FA Cup not about two years ago. So, oh, that's you all know, right. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things. Newcastle yeah. fans give their right arm to have won the FA Cup two yes, years ago. Yes, Newcastle, right. Now, or Swindon fans come to that. We won the League Cup in 1969. I'm just going to remind you, 3-1 against your team, yes, Arsenal. Yes, I, I remember it well. Dom Rogers scored twice. Good old Dom. Bobby Gould scored for Arsenal. Ah, Do you know who scored the other goal? No. Roger Smart. Ah, very good knowledge. You would know that. if you, It's the only bit of Swindon football <laughs> glory Swindon's ever, ever had, albeit 50 years ago. Right, a test debut for Sam Billings, which is the final test in Australia. So now we've got the final test in Australia, which start, which is in Hobart. Right. So the first ever Ashes test to be played in Hobart. Right. Uh, it joins the roster. It's the first new... Uh, it's obviously because Perth uh, mm. closed its borders, basically, mm. to uh, to people. So, uh, so the first time there's been a new test venue in Australia since, I think, 1970, when Perth joined the yeah. the roster. So, um, so they'll play there. Uh, it's a pink ball test. So it's a day-night test. Right. Uh, so actually, you'll be, you'll be able to get up if you rather than staying up late. You can get yeah. up early for this yeah. one and watch it through the morning. I just want to see the pink ball. I uh, know. Well, there you go. Uh, and so, and, and England, yes. Yeah, so England, uh, obviously, you know, the ashes are gone, um, and it's all about playing for pride. Yeah. Uh, Sam Billings looks like he's going to play wicketkeeper because Joss Butler's gone home with a fractured finger. Right. So Sam Billings comes in and makes his Test debut. There's been a history of people making a Test debut in the fifth Test as England have been uh, battered in. In mm. Australia, and they look to make changes in the last test. And this one's forced through injury, uh, so let's hope Sam Billings doesn't become a one-cap wonder and go the way that some of these other players have in the past. Right. Uh, but he's got a chance. He's coming in. Uh, he's been in Australia playing in the Big Bash, so he comes in as England look to try to, um, you know, who knows? Hobart conditions or Tasmanian conditions should be a bit more up England Street. The the, the pitch is very green. Right. The temperatures are lower. Uh, the wickets should suit them. So hopefully, hopefully, mm. they could leave with a test victory. I, do, I suspect, I detect you're not saying that with a lot of conviction. Well, we'll talk Friday and see where they're at okay. after day one. All right. Now, my, my favourite story of the week, um, if we discount Partygate, Novak Djokovic. How many fibs has he told? I know. Well, this is what's uh, come to light. The latest is that uh, uh, he's... First of all, he, he wasn't meant to travel uh, to another country before coming into Australia. And it, on his immigration form, he said that he'd, he'd just been in Serbia. So Turns out he'd actually been in Spain. Blamed his agent for that. Blamed his agent for ticking the wrong box. Right, but that's breaking the law to yeah. give incorrect information yeah. on an immigration form. Yeah, yeah, and we're still waiting. We're still waiting for the immigration chief in Australia. Well, they're going to make sure it is absolutely watertight so he can't win an appeal. 
Well, yeah, so yeah, so you think they're going to wait and then they're absolutely make sure. I mean, the tournament starts Sunday. It's it's incredible they've let it get to this late stage. And then he also has admitted that he did have COVID when he saw those youngsters in Serbia. Yeah, and he also and and did an interview with a Lequipe journalist when again. What's Lequipe? So a a French sports paper. Okay, so has that journalist caught COVID off of no? Well, apparently they social distanced everything, but he obviously shouldn't have been there. Shouldn't have been doing the interview. But Djokovic's story is he didn't want to let the uh, the journalist. Down, which would be uh, first time a sports person's yeah. put a journalist top well, of their uh, yeah, list of absolutely. people they care about. So yes, the the uh, lies or mistakes depends how mm. you want to look at it. Keep on coming. So we're still waiting to find out whether he can play. Right. Uh, there is a pers- possibility they will let him play the whole tournament and then kick him out at the end to sort of give him a stay of execution. Mm. But I want him to lose in the first or second well, round, hopefully uh, to Andy Murray. As we said, there's going to be such a yeah, spotlight on is. him. It's going to be incredible he, if he's allowed to play. Yeah, and I can ask you just one other question on tennis. Emma Raducanu who's our great uh, Grand Slam champion. She won the US Open the first time since Virginia Wade in 77. She did very well, did she, when she played in a warm-up match? No, she was in Sydney and she lost, uh, well, in straight sets and actually only won one game. Now, you know, yeah, it's not ideal. Um, she wasn't too despondent, though. She's had COVID herself yeah. fairly recently. Yeah. So she's not been having the practice that she possibly would have normally had. Mm. Well, definitely that she normally would have had. So she wasn't massively despondent. Look, you got, I think with, with Raducanu, it's bizarre because we all expect her to go out now and not necessarily win the Aussie Open, but, you know, get to the last four yeah. or something. Or put yeah. a re- but she is. she was ranked 350 in the mm. world before the, the you know, the mm. US Open. So she's got no God-given right now to just rock up to the no. next grand slam and win it or at least you know get to the semi so i think we've got to remember that was an exceptional performance yeah it came from nowhere yeah and by rights she isn't expected then to turn around and win the next one so i think there has to be a certain amount of realism and she was beaten by a seeded player yeah yeah i mean look she's a great player she's a fantastic player Mm. every player who comes from nowhere in any sport and suddenly has this Mm. moment of success inevitably has a dip afterwards and you know there's no doubt she will have a dip she's already sort of had that in other tournaments she's yeah. played how long that dip goes on for you know I would worry if it goes on for a year but I don't I, I you know you cannot see her going and performing to those levels again for a while she's she's getting used to a new coach as yeah. well yeah. so I think we need to I know you don't want to I can sense no, you I want to need to well. cut us some slack I on yeah well. but oh, we need yeah. to be I yeah. think I just don't think we can expect she's only to. 18, exactly. She? So she's not going to go. And, 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 you know, people will start saying, oh, well, she's got all these sponsorship deals all of a sudden. Mm. She's taken her eye off the ball. But mm. again, I don't think that can be necessarily um, used to beat her with. I think we just got to. No, no. I'm a big fan of Emma Raducanu. Wanted to do well. So um, I'm encouraged by what you say. <laughs> that is Matt Gatwood, who's un- unaccustomed to me being gracious about any sportsman. <laughs> yeah, taking me by surprise. <laughs> Always a pleasure. The dreaded HMRC has granted a deadline extension to tax returns again this year, but Ben Wilkinson, who's deputy editor of Money Mail, has warned people, don't relax about your tax. Now, taxpayers have until the end of February to file a return and until April to pay, but HMRC will begin charging interest on sums to load. Ben joins me now. Ben, so normally we would all have to pay this, would we, by the end of January? Yeah, that's right. So anyone who's self-employed, um, a landlord, um, anyone who has to pay back a bit of child benefit has to file one of these self-assessment returns by the 31st of January and you know settle any bill that they owe. Right. Um, if not, they'd be hit with a hundred pound fine, and um, you know interest would start accruing. 
So why have they um, extended the deadline again? Is it all linked to COVID? Yeah, it's the it's the Omicron effect. So um, you know, I think HMRC, HMRC itself is you know probably one of the worst hit by this. They've got people working from home trying to handle calls. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. Yeah, they've got a staff shortage. Um, accountancy firms that are, you know, handling a lot of these for um, small businesses and the self-employed, they're, they've got a bit of a staff staff problem with people isolating, etc. And um, yeah. and obviously taxpayers are, you know, affected as well. Yeah, so your advice is get the tax return done by the end of February and then they'll give you until April to pay. So if you do your tax return, um, Ben, at the end of February, how quickly do HMRC tell you how much you owe or do you tell them what you owe and they either agree or disagree with it? How does it work? Um, So it should should be instantaneously. So this is the the online return where you... You know, you input all that you've earned, yeah. um, and you, and there's all there's all sorts of added complexities this year because this is the pandemic tax year, so 20, 2021 tax year, where people have to. I mean, a lot of people might not realise that they have to pay tax on these COVID support payments they've had. Oh, um, so that that's another thing, and I think the advice we're hearing is that you know, do not be lulled into a false sense of security by this deadline relaxing because you know there's there's lots to get through there's lots of new challenges and you know if, if you if you don't file by january 31st you're still going to have to pay interest on what you owe and that, that that's at 2.75 percent which is which is quite a lot so even though they've extended the deadline until the end of february you're saying to people get it in by the end of january are you oh yeah no no it's um, it's one of these things the sooner the better um and, you know, issues could arise, you know, you, you might have a problem, you might try to have to speak to someone on the phone and you, know, you might have you to could, wait an hour or two. And, yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it's a real minefield. And, um, you know, if you end up missing that second deadline, the, the penalties quickly stack up. Of course they do. Um, of course they yeah. do. They're, they're funny, aren't they, HMRC? Well, it's not funny. It's very irritating. If um, <laughs> you are late, we, you have to pay interest. But if you overpay and they pay you money back, you don't get any interest. It's a one-way street, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and it's the same if if, if they make an error. Yeah. Or with your tax, you know, they just they just correct it. Whereas if you make an error, you can um, you can face a penalty on you know I think it's upwards of five percent on the tax you owe. So incredible, um, it's incredible, a, isn't it? An innocent error. So um, and people, each one of these things yeah. takes time. And, yeah, and people just finally, Ben. People then who've had COVID support payments. This is is this. Are you talking about things like furlough cash, or is it other payments? Yep. So for some businesses, it will be furlough cash, I believe. But it's things like these self-support, self-employment support grants. Um, you know, if you've had to self-isolate as well, and you've got a bit of money from, um, you know, your local authority for that. Um, you know, if you've got a business rate reduction. Right. These grants are being given out, so it's um, it's all these kind of bits of you know, all that money they're dishing out. Um, they do love it, don't they? They're like dishing yeah. it out with one hand and taking it back with the other. Exactly, yeah. And um, I think a lot of a lot of small business owners and self-employed are going to have quite a shock when they when they complete their return. So, yeah. um It's one of these things you can't. You will have to pay the tax. So, you know, don't delay the inevitable. You can get your affairs in order. Well, it's great advice as ever from Money Mail, Ben. Um, don't hang around for that extension deadline. Get your get your return in by the end of January um, to ensure you're not hit with any icebergs. That's it. Yeah.
That's great advice. That's Ben Wilkinson, who's deputy editor of Money Mail. Do read his piece today about the pitfalls of delaying in paying. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.